You are listening to the Central Students Podcast. To learn more about Central Students, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net slash students. All right. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is where we are going to be tonight. Let me ask you a question. I'm going to ask you guys a question real quick, okay? What is the difference, okay? Now, here, here's the thing. In your answers, okay, don't get like, don't give me like super spiritual answers, okay? Give me like practical from the outside, like whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, you can see this, okay? What is the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? Morals. Law? Love, okay. Salvation? So, I mean, that's good. That's true. That is true. But, repentance, okay. What, what was that? Yeah, that's true. So, like, from a practical standpoint, like, like how does a Christian act versus a non-Christian? Like, so, like, like, based off the way that they live their lives, like, what would you say is a practical difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? What? Happy. Happy. Joyful. Okay. Do you watch them do it? Like behavior wise. It's amazing how we can't come up with answers, can we? Isn't that amazing though? Honestly. Like when we talk about what is from the outside looking in, what is a practical difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? None of us can give an answer. See, and I find, you know, if, 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 you, if you want, uh, actually, stay in 2 Corinthians. Okay, stay in 2 Corinthians. But I'm going to read to you uh, something in 1 Timothy, okay? Now, some of you are like, maybe you're kind of like, I don't understand what this has to do with uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. That's okay. Just hang with me because you will, all right? 1 Timothy chapter 4. This is Paul writing to Timothy, verses 1 and 2. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times... Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now, what Paul is talking about here is something that is commonly referred to uh, for those you know for maybe some of you who for those of you who care, it's called it's something called the great apostasy, okay? Or uh, other terms for it are the great rebellion or the great falling away, and it's mentioned multiple times throughout Scripture. Jesus mentions it, uh, but the, you know, but it ultimately foretells of a time of people leaving Orthodox. Now, I'm not talking about like the denomination Orthodox. I'm talking about like standard truth, uh, Orthodox Christian doctrine, and they will follow what the scriptures say is demonic teachings. Thus opening the door for, ultimately, those of you who are interested, thus opening the door for the Antichrist, who will proclaim himself to be God and will deceive many people before Christ ultimately returns and defeats him, right? So the scripture is clear that there's coming a day where people will fall away from the true doctrine and teaching of scripture and will pursue what is called demonic teachings, and what you will notice that every time that this is mentioned is that it is people who, these people who fall away are not people who are outside of the church. These are people who are inside the church. 
People professing Christ. Now here's the thing. There's a difference between professing Christ and truly being indwelt by the Holy Spirit and being a Christian. So I'm not saying people who are saved who lose their salvation. What I'm talking about is people within the church who profess the name of Christ who fall away. It is those that are inside the church that twist the doctrine of the gospel and it will deceive many people. It is new teaching that destroys and it condemns many to hell, even though they choose to follow it willingly because it sounds good and they're convinced. Why do I open with that? Some of you are like, wow, that's super depressing. Like, music was fun. The game was cool, but that's depressing. They're like, what in the world does that have to do with anything? And because here's something that I think, there's something that I see every single day, and it breaks my heart. People who truly believe that they have a relationship with Jesus, and they don't. People who believe that they are Christians, and they are not. Especially people, people who are in college. And it's not like, and what happens is, is that it's people that are, that, you know, maybe they were raised in church. What happens is they go to college and then things totally get out of whack because they're not grounded in what they believe before they get there, but they're grounded in what they've been told. But they believe what they believe because they've been told it. They don't believe it because they've studied it for themselves and they know it to be true. People who believe themselves to be Christians when they are not is incredibly sad. And the reason that they're not Christians is because the Jesus that they love is a Jesus that they've created in their minds and is not a Jesus of the Bible and it's not a Jesus who truly exists. The God that they worship is not the God of Scripture. It's a God, who's they, who, it's a God who they have made up in their minds. It's a God who has no demand for holiness and a God that changes with the times. He evolves as time goes on. He changes with the culture. Despite scripture clearly saying in Malachi 3.6, I the Lord do not change. And Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We have these people who believe that they are Christians and they, the God that they worship adjusts with the times. And, and, you, and may, they may not say that, but what they do is when you address something that maybe is in their life or something that they agree with and you say, you know, hey, you know that's like sinful, right? And they say, oh, well, that was Old Testament. Right? Well, if God doesn't change, then why are you saying, oh, that's Old Testament, that doesn't apply now? And most of the time, the things that they say, oh, that's Old Testament, it's in the New Testament too. But they've only heard people quote Old Testament, so they just don't know that it's in the New Testament. Right? But God does not change. Today, there is a rise in something that is called progressive Christianity. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. It is slowly becoming the dominating theme throughout our culture, and especially throughout our quote-unquote Christian culture. It's not even like easy to recognize. It's not even recognized by many people. However, there are thousands, if not millions of people, claiming to be Christians and followers of Christ, and this is the theology that they are following, progressive Christianity. And let me just, I went to the progressivechristianity.org website, okay? Like, I'm not just pulling this out of my hind end, all right? This is what they believe, Christians, progressive Christianity, from their website, from their website, quote, by calling ourselves progressive Christians, we mean that we are Christians who believe 
Number one, that believe that following the path of the teacher Jesus can lead to healing and wholeness, a mystical connection to God, as well as an awareness and experience of not only the sacred, but the oneness and unity of all life. There are eight of these. Number two, we affirm that the teachings of Jesus provide uh, but one of many ways to experience God. The sacredness, the oneness, and the unity of life that we can draw from diverse sources of wisdom, including earth, in our spiritual journey. Number three, we seek and create community that is inclusive of all people, including but not limited to conventional Christians and questioning skeptics, believers and agnostics, those of all races, cultures, and nationalities, those of all sexual orientations and all gender identities, those of all classes and abilities, those historically marginalized, and all creatures and plant life. Uh, number four, we know that the way we behave towards one another and the earth is the, fullest ex- is the fullest expression of what we believe. Therefore, we vow to walk as Jesus might have walked in this world with radical compassion, inclusion, and bravery to confront and positively change the injustices that we experience as well as those that we see others experiencing. Number five, we find grace in the search for understanding and believe that there is more value in questioning with an open mind and an open heart than in absolutes or dogma. Basically saying that there is no absolute truth. Find your own truth, okay? That sounds really Christian. Number six, we work toward peace and justice among all people and all life on earth. That's, that's good, uh, depending on what your understanding of justice and peace are. Uh, number seven, we protect and restore the integrity of our earth and all of, its creation, all of the creation. Number eight, this is the last one, we commit to a path of lifelong learning, compassion, and selfless love on this journey. Excuse me, on this journey toward a personally authentic and meaningful faith. Now, let me ask you does that sound like the teachings that Jesus gave? No. No, it does not. Now, there's parts in there that are good seeking justice for all people, that's a godly thing. Desiring justice, loving people, that's good. That's pretty much it. But this is, this is the majority of Christians today. And I will ask you this question. How many of your Christian quote-unquote friends are progressive Christians? How many Christians do you know are progressive Christians? And you need to know that progressive Christianity is not Christianity. We must understand what is happening. That true biblical Christianity is under attack in the United States and across the world. And if you believe what the Bible says, you will be accused of being unchristlike. Isn't that amazing? That if you stick to what the Bible actually teaches, people will accuse you of not being like Jesus. That's not very Christ-like. What they'll say is, my Jesus wouldn't act like that. Well, your Jesus doesn't exist. It's a problem. See, you're not going to be persecuted because you're a Christian. You'll You'll be persecuted because you're not Christian enough. Because our world has decided to determine what Christianity is rather than allowing Scripture to determine what it is and God to determine what it is. Listen to this quote. It's an amazing quote. The church in America is going to suffer so terribly, and you laugh now, but they will come after us. Continues on going. You will be isolated from society, as has already happened. Anyone who tries to run for public office will actually, uh, who actually believes the Bible will be considered a lunatic until finally we are all silenced. We will be called things that we are not and persecuted, not for being followers of Christ, but but for being radical fundamentalists who do not know the true way of Christ, which of course is love and tolerance. We'll go down as the greatest bigots and haters of mankind in all of history. I tell you this because it's important. 
That as Christians, we must understand that tough times, uh, that tough times are coming, and though times may change, our God does not. And that the culture shifts and changes constantly, Scripture does not, and the church does not either. Now, I'm not trying to say that we should sing songs, you know, from like the 1750s. I'm not saying that we need to, you know, like we should, we should all speaking in Aramaic, you know, and we should all wear wearing sandals. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about basic doctrine of Scripture. God does not change, and His demands for holiness do not change, and Scripture does not change either. Now, with that being said, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Some of you are like, what does that have to do with anything? It has everything to do with it. Let's listen. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling among them and, and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Keep going, chapter 7. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit and bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We're going to break this down and we're going to kind of fly through it, okay? We're going to try and just, just, just chug through it, all right? Number one, we see the call for separation. Do not be unequally yoked with believers. Now, let me give you just a little bit of background of where we've been. So if, you ha- if this is your first week being with us, or you haven't been with us in a while, you're like, wow, this sounds like a total turd muffin. Let me explain where we're at, okay? Last week, I don't know, if, like, so th- those of you who were with us last week, we talked about how we have been given an, an assignment. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We have been given the task of taking the good news of the gospel, of how man can be made right with God, and taking that to a world that desperately needs it. Sharing the gospel. We talked about there's, ma- there's one main way that we do this. And really, it's through relationships, Right? But the main way that we share the gospel with people who do not know Christ is by establishing relationships with them and getting to know them. So the logical question is, is how do I build relationships with non-Christians while not yoking myself with them? Like, what does yoking even mean? A lot of us, maybe we've heard, you know, uh, we've heard this idea. Where have you ever heard, like, do not be unequally yoked? Where have you, in what context does that usually apply? Marriage and dating, Right? However, when you read 2 Corinthians, marriage and dating is not mentioned anywhere in this, this area. It's like in the context, it, it's not even there. Now, don't get me wrong, it applies to marriage and dating 100%. But if we just narrow it down to dating people, then we're, gonna under, then we're totally going to miss the point of this passage. That we have to understand the entire thing of what is it that Paul is trying to say. And let me first begin by telling you what he is not saying. He is not saying... That you should isolate yourself from people who aren't Christians. That would totally contradict with everything that else that he says, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. I wrote to you in my letter not to... Sorry, 1 Corinthians, excuse me. I wrote to you uh, in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. 
Romans 10, 13 through 15. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. See, we are not called to isolate ourselves from the world around us. We are not called to just kind of stick around in our holy huddles and put like big walls around and make sure that no one that doesn't love Jesus comes in. That is not what we are called to do. And when we talk about not being yoked with unbelievers, we are not saying that we should just like give them the Heisman and just like, you know, good luck. We are meant to have meaningful relationships with people who are not Christians in hopes that they would soon come to a saving knowledge of Christ, right? However, if we're honest, isolating ourselves from non-Christians can be a real temptation if we're, if we're honest, right? I mean, Scripture is clear that we are to go out into the world, that we have hit this super hard over the past several weeks of the emphasis that we have on sharing the gospel. So I'm not going to like drive you crazy with that right now. Right? He's not saying that we should have only surface level superficial relationships with non-Christians, right? So to yoke yourself to, to a non-Christian does not mean, or sorry, to not yoke yourself to, to a non-Christian does not mean that the relationship I have with them is super superficial, like, and it's like, and it doesn't really mean anything, and I'm almost like indifferent to them. Like, I don't really care, like, I'm only doing this because I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. No. We are called to have in, de- meaningful relationships with these people. Jesus had meaningful relationships with people who were not believers in hopes that they ultimately would be. So if we know what he's not saying, then we need to ask ourselves this question. What is he saying? Do not be yoked. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Oftentimes we hear people talk about this in regard to dating or marriage. However, within this context, we see that Paul is not talking exclusively about romantic relationships. Right? The word here literally means to be bound together, right? To be bound together. And now, and I've, I've talked about this in the past, but if you don't know, that's cool. Uh, so a yoke, all right, is, we're not talking about like an egg yoke, okay? We're not talking about that. Like Y-O-K-E, yoke. And basically what this is, is uh, in farming, when you have like an ox or a do- uh, you have two oxen or two donkeys or whatever, and they're plowing a field, the wooden piece that goes on their shoulders and connects them, that is a yoke, Okay, maybe if you go to like Cracker Barrel, it's hanging on the wall or something like that. Like, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's this big wooden piece that goes on the shoulders of an animal. And what would happen is the plow would be attached to that. And as, so that as they would go, they would plow the field. And typically a yoke was for two animals to be yoked together. They were literally, they were bound together with the purpose of accomplishing the task of the farmer. They were bound together with a common goal. That's why Deuteronomy 22, uh, verses 9 and 10 says this, You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited. Now, we have to understand that he's talking about literally like if you, two different seeds uh, in your vineyard, basically it's going to mess it up. It's going to mess up the whole thing, right? Verse 10, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. So if you had one yoke and you had an ox on one end of it and you had a donkey on the other side, what would happen if they tried to plow the field together? One, it would, it would be all uneven. Or two, the ox would just drag that donkey to death. Right? Right? I mean, we would agree that it's not a healthy situation. The idea of a yoke is more than simply a relationship. The, the thought here is two individuals that are bound together for a particular goal or purpose. You see where we're going? 
All right, we're all, all, right, we're all, we're all on board. In particular, in all things that are sacred with relationship to God. This is what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about things that are sacred in, when it comes to a relationship with God. So worship, prayer, evangelism, and so on. We must, we must, as the church, as Christians, we must be set apart from the world in these areas. We cannot allow worldly influence to infiltrate holy practices. Now, let's keep in mind who Paul is writing to. Paul, who is Paul writing to? The Corinthians, okay? Corinth is a city in where? Greece, okay? So, everybody in the Corinthian church that, that is a Christian, that, that accepts Christ, they did so because they are, they are, they did so, in doing so, they are leaving paganism. Basically, everybody in Greece is, is a pagan. And what I mean by that is basically they worshipped multiple false gods. There was idol worship and all these things. So, what you have is you have people who, in order, in, in going into a relationship with Christ, they were leaving pagan practices, right? They were leaving terrible practices in order to have a relationship with God. Now, in America, it's kind of hard for us to understand this because I don't know if you know this, but America is like the first country in the history of the world where religion and government and everything are like separate, right? Like, it's kind of like the first country where you have that. So, like, you know, for us, we, you know, not, not in a good way, but we kind of have our religious life over here, and then we have, like, our, our, our professional life over here, and the two don't mix. But basically, everywhere in the world in the first century, your religion was a part of everything that you did. Your government, your job, your family life, your, your social interactions. Religious life of a person infiltrated every single aspect of daily living. So, to become a Christian in this time would cost you almost your entire life. Everything. You would have to leave everything. So, Paul emphasized to the Corinthians the responsibility of taking the message of the gospel to all people, knowing that it would cost those people who choose to turn from their sin and follow Christ, it would cost them everything. So what was the natural temptation of the church? And now I've mentioned this in the past, that in, in, uh, in Corinth there were false teachers that would come in to the church and teach false things. And ultimately what was happening is that they were taking these pagan practices and using them in the worship uh, within the church. And the reason they were doing this is because they're trying to make the transition from paganism to Christianity one that is more attractive and one that is easier. So, yeah, so, and when I say pagan practices, let me explain to you what I'm talking about. In Corinth, in particular, there's a temple to, uh, there's multiple temples to these multiple false gods, and part of how they would worship is there are something called temple prostitutes. Now, I don't need to get into much detail here, but how you would worship some particular gods is you would do so with temple prostitutes. That's, I don't need to go any further than that. That's how you would do that. And so it's, it's practices like this that they are bringing into the church and being like, hey, look, we're just like you. We're just a little bit different. Like, I mean, you can still kind of do those things, but just kind of do them towards God. You know what I'm saying? This is what Paul is talking about when he says, do not yoke yourselves to unbelievers. Do not use worldly practices to worship a holy God. Christians cannot glorify God when they seek to do so in partnership with a sinful world. We cannot make people who are lost come into a right relationship with Christ by designing our worship gatherings to be more acceptable to a sinful world. 
Right? The church, by definition, is to be set apart from the world. 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We cannot yoke and bind ourselves to the customs of sin and then think that we are glorifying God in the process. That's not how it works. See, going back to this idea of dating and relationships, right? In particular, I'm going to kind of talk about like marriage. So like the purpose of marriage is to glorify God. If you think that marriage is to like, you know, you complete me. That's not marriage. Okay, I'm sorry. If you're seeking somebody to complete you, then um, that's going to be an unhealthy relationship because you are depending on them for something that only God can give you. And you're either going to wear that person out or they're going to frustrate you because they're never going to be enough. Right? But the purpose of marriage is so that we can, is so that a husband and a wife reflect the gospel. That a husband should love his wife in a way that when the world looks at that marriage, they see the way that God loves his church. And a wife should love her husband in a way that when the world looks at that relationship, they would see how the church responds and loves God. That is what marriage is for. It is a demonstration of the gospel. So, to be married to an unbeliever, you cannot do that. It is impossible. And just like an unequally yoked relationship cannot glorify God, an unequally yoked church cannot glorify God either. When Christians seek to use earthly means to fulfill their heavenly task, they render themselves useless. And there were some in the, in the Corinthian church that were seeking pagan worldly means to attract people to Christ. And even today, we see many Christians and churches doing this exact same thing. Remember, what is it that I just talked about with the progressive Christianity, those eight points? I mean, we don't turn anybody away, son. Like, like, and obviously, like, Christ doesn't turn people away either. But basically what it is, is this idea of, you know what, we basically stand for nothing. Right? We've taken the, the sword of the word of God and we have dulled it to the point that if you hit somebody over the head with it as hard as you could, it doesn't do anything. Why? Because we want it to be attractive to people. And the reason we do this is because we have forgotten the miraculous work that salvation is. You need to know that people are not saved because they are convinced to be saved. They are not saved because the gospel has been presented in a way they're like, you know what? Mm. You know what? You're right. People are saved because of a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. It is a miracle. And any time that you try to pretty up the gospel so that it's more acceptable to people than it already is, you are denying the powerful, miraculous work that the gospel is. People are not saved because we adjust the truth to be more palatable. People are saved because the Holy Spirit convicts them of their sin and does a work that you and I cannot do. As we've just, as we've, you know, we've discussed these pagan practices and these different things, and we spoke about this last week, as Christians, we have been given a mission, and we have been given the ministry of reconciliation, showing people how they can be made right with God. And this is a task that cannot be accomplished while we are in partnership with the kingdom of darkness. James 4.4, 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I'll give you an example. Suppose that I am a that there's a king, right? There's a king, and you are a servant to this king. And this king has a bride that is just that he loves dearly. 
And he has, or he has dressed his bride in the most beautiful linens, right? Just, just gorgeously has, has provided her the best clothes, had the best things. And he loves his wife. And he's going to go on a trip. And what he says is he says, he gives you the responsibility. Hey, look after my wife while I am gone. And as he's gone, he's, he's gone longer than expected. He's gone a little bit longer than he said he was going to be. And what you see ultimately is that while he is gone, you see that the people in the kingdom, like, they don't necessarily, like, love the king as much as they used to. Especially, they don't love the queen as much as they used to either. They're kind of, they've gotten disinterested. So you're like, I have an idea. So what you decide to do is you decide to take the queen and you strip her of her beautiful clothes that the king gave her and you give her clothes that you think look better, that the, that the kingdom thinks look better. And what you do is you parade her around the kingdom in front of sinful men who basically so that you can say, hey, look how great the queen looks now. That you have stripped her of everything that the king has given her and you've made her more acceptable to the kingdom because you think that that's going to make them fall back in love with the king again. What will the king do when he gets back and sees what you've done to his bride? Now, what will God do to people who have done the same thing to his church? Who have stripped it of everything that makes it set apart and beautiful to him and made it more appeasing to people who hate God. Paul gives two reasons that we should not yoke ourselves to the world. And I'm running out of time. One, it's irrational. It doesn't make sense. And he gives these hypothetical questions. One, he says, what, uh, he goes, do not yoke yourself, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness uh, or what fellowship has light to do with darkness? See, for a believer to partner with an unbeliever in a common spiritual pursuit makes no sense. Paul illustrates this through these questions. What does righteousness have to do with lawlessness? And he says this, this word partnership here, it's a synonym for uh, koinonia, which basically means uh, a fellowship. So the same word that is used throughout scripture, talking about Peter uh, and his partners in fishing and, uh, and uh, business and Christians partnering together in the work of Christ, is the same word that he uses here. So the thought here describes being in a relationship of common life and effort. And as we talked about, as we've talked about, the Christian life is marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit leading us to a life of righteousness. See, the problem is that you have two people of completely different natures. If you are saved, you have been clothed in the righteousness of God. You are dead in your sins and you've been made alive in Christ. You are alive in Christ. You are righteous in the eyes of God. God has imputed to you his righteousness. And people who do not have a relationship with Christ are not so. They are dead in their sins. Living in the way, as scripture says, of lawlessness. And I'm having to, I'm not able to read everything that I want to because I'm short on time. But understand that this is people who do, they are, they are lost. It is, it's two totally different people. What do you have in common? The thing that you love the most is the thing that they hate the most. How can you possibly worship God with somebody that hates God? Go back to the idea of dating. Actually, before I get to that, first, we need to understand this. Paul is not only talking about people who claim to be an atheist, or he's not strictly talking about people who claim another faith. The most dangerous people to yoke ourselves with are those who profess Christ outwardly, but inwardly rebel against him and are opposed to him. People who appear to be Christians, but inwardly they're not. Now we go to the dating idea. So many times, 
I see this. But you need to know, before you date anybody, I'll talk to you, I can talk to you guys about this because you're in high school, right? I won't talk to middle school. I'll be like, before you like play sketchers with somebody, I don't know, whatever, right? Okay, but like, but like so like, before you date anybody, here's the question. Do you know that that person is a Christian? Do you know it? Do you know it? Is there a shadow of a doubt in your mind? Do you know? It's not enough to hope. Because here's the deal. That relationship will end one of two ways. You'll either break up or you'll get married. Do you know? And here's the thing. How do you know? How do you know if somebody is a Christian? Ultimately, time. Because the true fruit of their heart will show over time. And that's why it's so foolish to just rush into a relationship. Because this person said, I'm cute. If that person has not been given a new nature by the power of the Holy Spirit, you cannot yoke yourself to that person in a way that glorifies God. And some of you are like, well, I'm not getting married. Here's the thing, guys, is that most people are emotionally married long before they're ever legally married. Most people, they have emotionally married themselves to somebody before they're ever legally married. And this especially goes to guys. If you aren't capable of being a godly husband, you ain't ready to be a godly boyfriend. Just straight up. Don't wait to be a godly husband until you say, I do. Treat her the way that the scripture says you should. And girls... Don't accept anything less. Anything less. If they don't treat you like Christ treats the church, chabu, get out of here. I ain't got time for that. Right? People just diving into a relationship. Like you don't even know his middle name. Then what fellowship has light with darkness? We're probably not going to be able to get to groups tonight. We're just going to... You know, if you want to talk, we go to Chick-fil-A afterwards, and we, we circle up at the Teen Challenge parking lot, and we, and we have Chick-fil-A. It's a good time. All right. What fellowship has light with darkness? You don't need to be a rocket scientist to know that light and dark do not exist at the same time in the same space. They are mutually exclusive of one another. In Scripture, light, uh, light refers to holiness, while darkness refers to evil. Matthew 5, 14-15. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. To expect a good result from the children of light working in coercion with the children of of darkness is as foolish as to expect both light and darkness to exist in the same place at the same time. It is not possible. It's irrational. Keep on going. So we talk about the clashing of the nature of two different people. Then we get to the uh, we get to something else. What harmony has Christ with Belial? See, the first two questions are aimed at the nature. The third question is referring to the leaders of the two kingdoms that the people are citizens of. Said, if you are a child of God and you are a citizen of heaven, you know that the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the ruler and the Lord of your life is God. But if you do not have a relationship with Christ, Scripture is clear who your king is. Belial is an ancient term for Satan. The term in the Hebrew means corrupt or worthless. And it's a fitting title for Satan who is the ultimate worthless one. 
And this is the one that is the ruler of the kingdom of darkness and that so many people are citizens of. And all throughout scripture, Satan is called the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4, John 14.30, John 12.31, John 16.11, Ephesians 2, 1 and 3. Satan is the ruler and the king of this world. He's the prince of the powers of the air. Now scripture is clear that God has full dominion. Okay? It's not like Satan has control of the earth and God's like, mm, I can't wait to get my hands on that one day. Okay? Psalm 135.6 Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. However, the idea is that the desires, the loves, the passions, the goals of this world are instituted and established by Satan himself. And when somebody who is outside of Christ, they are under his control. 2 Corinthians 4, we talked about this a few weeks ago, said that they are blinded by him. The sinfulness of their flesh has chained them to chasing after the pleasures of this world, that the pleasures that this world chases, and if you notice, all the things that this world chases are worthless. They're worthless. In John 8, Jesus talks about the Pharisees, and he says that you are of your, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do the, your father, what your father desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. See, people hate God because he, he is the ruler of the opposing kingdom that they are currently citizens of. However, if you are a Christian, you are no longer a citizen of this world. You have been born of God, Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not of the flesh, but of the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to Him. Then the word harmony here, what harmony does the children of Satan and the children of God, what harmony is there? The word harmony here literally means to agree with. We think of this a lot of times in music, right? In music where, you know, we think of harmony where there's, you know, you have multiple notes of music that they come together and they make one, unique, one complete sound. To say that a a citizen of the kingdom of darkness and a citizen of the kingdom of God can have unity is to say, basically, that God and Satan can have unity as well. When they are by nature opposed to one another. Then the last point. One, it's irrational. But two, it's it's sacrilegious. It's unacceptable. As previously mentioned, any twisting of Christianity is called the doctrine of demons. If you change Christianity, it's not Christianity anymore. You cannot mix the temple of God and the worship of idols, as he says here. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And he goes on and explains how you and I are the temple of God. There's a story in, in 2 Kings where a king, Manasseh, who, who basically what he does is when he becomes king, he basically sets up all these pagan idol worship things. And what he does is he takes these pagan idols and he puts them in the temple of God. Like, yo, mistake, okay? Second Kings is chapter, one, chapter 21. I'm not going to get into all of it. He goes, but verse 2 says, And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. This term despicable practices is referring to the, 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 the pagan things that the nations who lived there before them were doing, which God drove out. I mean, and God says here that he was doing things that were worse than what they were doing. 
So what does God do? Verse 10, And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, Because Manasseh, the king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all of the Amorites ever did who were before him, and he has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such a disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb lines of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all of their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt even to this day. Notice, God takes worship of himself incredibly seriously. You cannot worship God however you want. You worship him the way that he has commanded. And as Christians, we need to understand that we are designed, we are saved to be set apart. And you want to know what? Maybe the reason the world looks like it does today is because the world, the church, isn't influencing the culture as much as the culture is influencing the church. Maybe that's why the church doesn't seem to be doing anything. There's a, maybe this is, I don't know, but Andy Minio, I, I like Andy Minio, he's, he's a Christian rapper. He has a song uh, called Clarity, and there's a, there's a line in the song, and, and I'm just going to quote what he says, okay? So don't get mad at me because I said this. But basically, he says, uh, there's hella churches, but hella's working fine. That's what he says. Right, there's hella churches, but the church is, wor- but hell is working fine. It's this idea that why isn't the church doing anything against the kingdom of darkness? It's because you have Christians who've yoked themselves to the kingdom of darkness. And there's probably people in this room who have, thinking that they can change the gospel to mean what they want it to mean, and not what it actually means. And the question is, what do we do? How do we fix this? Well, he goes on and he says, Therefore, go out from their midst. Verse 17. And be separate from them. Then chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You know what's amazing is that we serve a God who who demands holiness, but we also serve a God who is extremely merciful and forgiving and loving. You know what we do? You repent and you pursue God. You repent. God, I'm sorry. God, forgive me. And then you pursue him. God is faithful to forgive. 1 John 1, 9. If anyone confesses their sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them of their sins and cleanse them from all unrighteousness. God is faithful to forgive and we all fall short in so many ways. We must not seek a faith that makes us feel better. We need to seek a faith. We need to seek a faith that is actually true. And what I've learned is that when you actually believe the gospel for what it is, and when you believe what scripture says and not adjust scripture to fit your life, but adjust your life to fit scripture, it's the most fulfilling thing you can ever do. I don't regret a single moment of my life that I've given to Christ. However, it breaks my heart seeing people who don't have the joy that I have. Not saying that I'm perfect, but I'm trying to say is as a Christian, the joy that others could have, they don't. And that's why we take this message to them unchanged and we present it to them in love. That's what we've been called to do. And if you are in this room and you have breath in your lungs, first, God calls you to himself. Abide in him. Find salvation in him. 
Knowing that he, forgives, he can forgive you of your sins. And then, while we are abiding in him, he calls us to go to others. and Take that message to them. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your, your word. God, I ask that, Father, as I, I went you know, a little bit long, God, I just ask that you would take the words that were said tonight, Father, you would take your scripture and that you would just drill it deep into us, Father, that we would not partner with a world that hates you, but Father, we would love you enough to desire to be as loyal to you as we possibly can. But God, I thank you for the fact that when I'm not faithful, you are always faithful. That God, when I fall short and you don't, that when I stumble, you pick me up. And God, that you are faithful to forgive when I need it. God, you don't call me to be perfect. You just call me to surrender. And I thank you for that. And God, if there's anyone in this room that does not know you, God, I ask that they do not leave this place without knowing you. Father, I thank you and I praise you. Thank you again for listening to the Central Students Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at centralsanford.net slash students.